Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's The Wonky Show. It's really all about the general election this week as we ask what Labour might do on funding and access and how universities might contribute to fixing the nation's ailing public sector. It's all coming up. You know, there's a lot of people lobbying the Labour Party for, you know, a little bit of extra money here, there and everywhere. And essentially, there's a three-line whip in terms of the shadow cabinet saying, no, they're just basically not committing to anything that involves new money. Um, And that's pretty consistent across the entire shadow cabinet. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's editor-in-chief, Mark Leach, and joining me for this week's pivot table of policy are three fantastic guests, as always. In Dublin, it's Gavin Conlon, partner at London Economics. Gavin, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, highlight of the week is we had a, a couple of pieces of work going out for Nuffield Foundation on higher education fees and funding. I think that's item number one today. And in Exeter, it's Wonky Show regular and Associate uh, Director for Education at Public First, Jess Lister. Jess, your heart of the week, please. Hello. Yes. Uh, so we've got a new member of the team in Public First Towers. Um, not only has my colleague Sally come back from shared parental leave, which is great, but she's brought uh, baby Burtonshaw with her and we're going to be putting them to work writing polls as soon as they can sort of walk, talk and speak English language. <laughs> so that's been a, been a nice week for us. Uh, and in Oxford, it's Michael Salmon, Wonky's news editor. Michael, your heart of the week, please. Hi Mark, yeah, I had a chance to sit down with Wonky's two fantastic interns this week um, and talk to them about what I do every day, which most people tend to lose interest in quite quickly, but they, they actually seem quite interested. Super keynotes. Um, right, new charts just dropped. Michael, what's going on? Yeah, it's been another week grappling with the most intractable of higher education policy questions. How should undergraduate study be funded? Um, so I don't need to tell anyone listening the last few years of enormous inflation have, let's say, problematized systems in which the uprating of both student maintenance and university tuition income don't happen automatically. Um, and, and, you know, we had some policy news this week in Wales um, and the the government explicitly cited the sustained inflationary pressure on higher education providers and announced a rise in tuition fees for undergraduates in Wales, up to £9,250 to match the English level. Um, So this is for all UK undergraduates studying full-time in Wales. Um, It's a lift in the fee cap, um, but if we've learned one thing from the last decade or so, it's that all universities will now raise tuition fees accordingly. There was also a small increase in fees in Northern Ireland, though you'd expect there'd be more to come with the assembly now back in place um and perhaps the main business um at least in in sort of wonky land has been um london economics publishing a big set of reports on both how much the current funding systems cost all across the four uk nations and really laying bare the big differences that have, have, have kind of slowly become baked into the four diverging 
operating system since dev- devolution. Um, and it also looks at, you know, potential tweaks to those systems, how much they would cost the public purse, what the impact would be on, on graduates at different income levels. You know, um, it's funded by the Nuffield Foundation um, with the idea that it's going to inform policy and public debate in the run up to an election. So if, for example, um, an incoming Labour government was minded to tinker with things like repayment or interest rates or students maintenance levels then it's it's plenty of food for thought for them and for us lovely and almost like we planned it we've got gavin condon on this week from london economics who actually the author author of that report gavin let's start with you is there anything that actually surprises you anymore about the the funding system when you so this this opportunity you had to go back in and look at every single uh, parameter is there anything that actually actually surprised you doing doing this work again yeah, so I mean, this is a really interesting piece of work, and we are very grateful to Nuffield Foundation for funding us. I mean, I suppose the point is that uh, I mean, the first thing is that this piece of work is like it's meant to be really apolitical. So it's not trying to suggest or propose particular systems for you know different political parties to adopt. It's just a sort of lay and bare what the systems, what they look like, and you know, essentially showing the cross country comparisons. I think the most interesting thing about it was just showing. Um, you know, the level of public funding in each of the home nations and essentially the extent of uh, how higher education institutions are resourced. So I think the, some of the main findings is that, you know, the, the level of public investment in Scotland is five times higher than in England for a home student studying in the home country. So it's over £9,000 of public investment in Scotland. It's 1600 in England. And that's, you know, quite incredible. Now, the money in Scotland, a lot of that goes into maintenance grants and tuition fee grants, obviously. Uh, but in, in England, it's, it's basically all, um, you know, loans and, and the write-off and loans. So that's quite interesting. But the other interesting thing is like, you know, despite the level of public investment in Scotland being five times higher than England, for instance, uh, universities in, uh, Scotland are about 25% worse funded than in England, same in Northern Ireland. So, Ahead of the election, some of this is really, really interesting because there really is a feeling that, um, you know, there have been a lot of casualties. HEIs across the four home nations have been, you know, really, really hammered with the uh, cost of living and the rate of inflation. But there's also the issue about students that, um, you know, especially in England, the, the operating of maintenance loans has been sort of abysmal. Uh, so there's lots of things to address. So, I mean, you know, with Labour likely to come in to power whenever the general election is held, there's lots of things to consider. And I suppose what this does is it just provides analysis on a like-for-like basis. So we're really chuffed with it. Jess, you know what I'm going to ask you. Um, we have this problem, don't we, with the with the, the fee cap. Um, and in England in particular. So, we, you know, the fees have gone up in Wales this week. So, and there's Labour administration in Wales, can't help but notice. Um, does that point to anything that might happen in Westminster after an election? Um, or do you foresee the stalemate on that issue remaining? So I think the the really interesting thing Gavin's report has done uh, is help people like me remember that that this is a sort of four nations debate. It's not just an England debate. There's there's sort of different sort of lifetime experiments going on uh, in each of each of the four countries. Um, what's happened in Wales is is essentially the, the the fee amount now matches the sort of England England counterpart, right? So it, it it's gone up to um, 1950, which is the same as in England. 
uh, there has always been a world in which the English home fee could go up to maybe, you know, nine seven fifty, even maybe nine nine ninety. Uh, it's getting over that next thousand mark, and you know, um, getting into that territory of this is the rate it should have been had it been uplifted with inflation as we went along, as it was supposed to be. That's always been the bigger challenge than sort of adding a little bit on top. Um, we had uh, the KCL event yesterday, uh, in which again lots lots of um, you know steamed vice chancellors sat in a room and talked talked about this issue. And all seem to agree that, you know, there is there is a massive unit of resource problem, but no one can quite work out yet what they're going to do about the political choices. Um, this is this all comes down to uh, political parties having to decide, are they going to pick, uh, you know, putting the burden of the fee on students, putting the burden of the fee on the state or accepting a sort of shrinking of the sector or a lowering of quality. And that's the territory we're in now. It's really fascinating territory. It's also immensely frustrating because no one's going to make those choices quickly. And they're definitely not going to make this side of an election in England. Um, So we're still in sort of endless stasis uh, going round and round. Um, which is, is sort of endlessly frustrating. And nobody's going to touch the live wire. I mean, this is the point that, I mean, all political parties are going to steer away from <clears throat> even mentioning uh, fees or raising fees. I mean, your work, Jess, recently said the sweet spot for fees amongst the general public is six to seven thousand pounds. So anybody turn around and sort of saying we're going to raise fees to 10, 250 or something like that. I mean, we'll face, you know, I mean, amongst a, a, a decent proportion of the electorate, we'll face obliteration. So what do you do? I mean, the only alternative, though, I mean, we've been looking at this, and the only, only alternative is to, to sneak something in the back door by raising teaching grants. And then the question is, okay, if you raise teaching grants, because essentially there's zero for arts and humanities and, you know, sort of marginal lab-based subjects. If you raise teaching grants by a £1,000 or whatever it is, how are you going to pay for that? And, you know, essentially the government has, in England, has already exhausted all means of, you know, extracting those repayments from graduates. So they've already extended the repayment period to 40 years. They've reduced the threshold for repayment. They've slowed the threshold, the operating of the threshold. I mean, the only thing that is left that can be done is raising real interest rates or reintroducing real interest rates. And again, that politically, you know, if you put that into an opinion poll, Jess, and I'm sure you've done this, if you put that into an opinion poll, do you want to reintroduce real interest rates? That will go down like, uh, you know, a cup of sick. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. And, and I think all of this comes back to two questions from a public opinion perspective, one of which is fairness and one of which is value for money. So the the trap, as I see it, and again, the, the the public opinion is different from the economic reality, but people don't always think the degree is worth £9,000. That's been an issue for a long time. It comes up in uh, lots of our groups, either with students or with members of the public. They're just not quite sure the, the product, as it is seen as, is, is worth the amount. And they don't understand how a thing that cost three grand overnight started to cost nine grand. Obviously, if you're in the sector, you know it's more complicated than that, but that is the public perception. And then the other one is, is is it fair that students, particularly in England, continue to be the people that sort of shoulder the load of this? Um, You know, the the thing that I was really struck by in Gavin's report was the difference in sort of student subsidy and state subsidy in in all of the four nations. In England, it was a lot lower than I thought it was. In Scotland, it's much, much higher. Uh, And maybe that's where this debate sort of needs to start to move to as we sort of get to get to the next election, whenever that will be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
Michael, the, the, we've got to separate out, haven't we, this conversation about fees from, from, from unit resource and funding higher education, because clearly no political party is going to promise to raise fees. I, I read, I, um, I read a report from that King's, uh, event that Jess mentioned that everyone in the room agreed that the sweet spot for fees should be 13 or 14k, which is, I guess, where it would be now if, if it'd be allowed to, to rise from inflation. That's definitely not going to happen. And, you know, more than double the, the actual sweet spot for where the, the public are. So it's unlikely a political party would do that. But as Gavin said, there are ways of funneling money through the back door. The choice is, though, for a new government, do they want to expand higher education or keep it afloat? Or would they rather shrink it and see either universities leave the market or, you know, universities substantially hollowed out? Um, I guess if we do funnel money uh, through the back door via, I guess, you know, borrowing, borrowing to do so, that raises problems of a long term, doesn't it? We've still got this fiscal illusion um, that just keeps getting tinkered with. How do we? How do we break the deadlock? Yeah, it's certainly not an easy question for to to, to give me at nine forty five in the morning. Um, I want I, you to solve this problem of fees and funding, yeah. Michael. I want I mean, an answer right now. I think it, I think it's going to be very interesting to see the sort of longer term reaction in Wales. Obviously, you know, mm, trying to yeah. sort of translate the Wales. Um, so, sort of political context uh, onto England is is a, is a very bad idea. I think you would sort of, you know, that 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 that's not the way to go. But it is interesting to see. First of all, you know, this raising fees was not in 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 Labour's manifesto in Wales. It's sort of more just part of the the draft budget process. They said even in December they'd consult on it, and now they've just said, actually, you know what? It's important. We're going to do it. It's a small increase. And Jeremy Miles in the Senate yesterday basically said, you know, what we all know, but the wider public doesn't really understand but he is trying to make that case that you know increase increasing fees by a small amount um, won't affect how much graduates are repaying it will mostly be written off for, for lower earners or even medium earners um, and really it's a way of just getting universities up a bit more budget you know the salience of that argument is really really hard to get across as we've said i mean the other the other point and you know this this idea about can we tinker with interest rates for example it, it feels like that debate is sort of dead uh, to me you know uh, there was even just just on Twitter this week, another one of these big th- viral threads of someone saying, look how much my repayments have gone up and compared to how much I've paid off in the last couple of years. Um, and there seems to be one of those every other week. So you've got MPs and peers regularly mentioning how in debt they are and what their interest rate is they're paying. So it, it doesn't feel like it's that. I, I think it does, you know, as we've said, need to come from other ways outside the fee and loan system um, to, to find money for universities. I mean, I, I don't think there's an indication that Labour, if they come to power, which looks likely will be wanting to shrink the sector or wanting things to, to go broke. But it's whether they've really got got the capacity for big thinking soon enough in, in a first term to actually do some of the things that will need to be done. But, you know, I, I don't think we should be expecting to see it in any manifestos that they'll raise fees. But I think it's important just to keep an eye on Wales to see, you know, is it possible just to go back to a system where each year there's a more of an expectation that there'll be a slight re- raise in fees because things have got more expensive. I mean, one thing I was going to say, I think like, you know, referring back to the point Jess made about fairness, I mean, introducing student number caps is fine in theory until it's one of your your kids, your own kids gets like, you know, doesn't get a place in university. Second thing is we suffer from, the reason why we're in this position is because we've had anemic economic growth for 14 years. If we had one percentage point more growth, we'd be sitting here thinking, how big should the maintenance grants be? You know, I mean, we'd be operating with inflation, there'd be no problem. It's just we have abysmal economic growth and we have had for more than a decade and that's why we've got the problems we have. Having a highly qualified 
labor force is the biggest determinant of long-run economic growth that there is. So we need educated people. Um, our, you know, people talk about productivity puzzle and things like this. If we didn't have the, the labor market composition we have, i.e. the quality of, of labor, because it is relatively highly educated, if we didn't have the level of um, quality in the labor market we have, our economic growth would be even worse. And we would be having, you know, we'd be facing catastrophic issues. So um, I think there's a lot of issues there. We, we definitely don't want to number caps. There is another issue that Michael raised about real interest rates. Real interest rates are still in the wealth system, amazingly. Uh, they seem to have held on to that, even though there is an attempt to sort of potentially move towards plan five. And the other thing is like that there are other, there are other bits of politics going on here. And this is the, the four nation thing. In Northern Ireland, we've got a new first minister. Okay. Who's the deputy leader of Sinn Fein on the island of Ireland. And they have to track essentially their policy has to track what happens in Dublin. And in Dublin, there's likely to be a new uh, Taoiseach in, in 2025 who's going to advocate for free fees. So there's going to be pressure to actually sort of go to a zero fee in Northern Ireland in some respects, even though the economics is exactly the opposite. But the issue here is that if you introduce free fees, it's a massive middle class subsidy. It doesn't benefit your sort of less well-off individuals, and that would be the natural constituency of Sinn Féin in the North. So, you know, politically... And economically, everything's just like a bit of a mess. So I think the only thing I'd, I'd add on the end of that is is to, to come back to England and and what our sort of um, the Labour Party will do if if and when they win. Um, doing nothing is also a political choice. Like like they they have in their hands the ability to sit on this issue for as long as they like and trade that off against the consequences of you know everything will tick along slowly. It will be like waiting for treacle. A few universities might go bust. Maybe we can sort them out when they do. Maybe the quality drops for a bit. Maybe the sector shrinks for a bit, and we'll fix it in twenty twenty four. I'm not twenty twenty four. Twenty thirty. Twenty thirty one. We'll sort of punt this to our second Parliament issue, and I think that's incredibly dangerous um, from what I see in the in the UK system at the minute. Not least because, you know, lower in quality, unhappy students, already high fees. Um, it, it becomes a very toxic issue very quickly. Um, but that do nothing option must look, you know, incredibly appealing at the minute. Or do lots, but do it quickly and then give yourself five years to, you know, row back from the, from the politics. Um, although I, I don't I don't see that somehow. Uh, but, you know, Labour did survive putting fees up last time, um, despite it being very toxic. Um, they survived by five votes, though. I mean, you know, introducing differential top-off fees, and in, in when the vote was in two thousand three or two thousand four, they, you know, the one hundred and sixty-one seat majority was reduced to five, and it took a, you know, couple of, you know, backroom deals with Nick Brown to, you know, get it through. I mean, it is it's like touching the live live rail. I mean, it's just it's instantaneous death. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so maybe the solution is not with a with a fee cap. The solution has to be elsewhere. But the choice is: do we want higher education to succeed in the long term? Do we want an educated population? Does Labour want two terms at the end of end of that second term, uh, claiming claiming a success from 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 driving economic growth from from all the positive things and interventions it can do in the economy, including not hollering out our university system? Um, I would have thought yes, but the political realities of these things obviously are very tricky, very tricky. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. I'm Nick Braseby, the Vice Chancellor of Buckinghamshire New University. Our article reflects on our experience of the recent OFS assessment process into the quality of business and management courses. The regulator has a difficult job to do and providers like like mine need to do all they can to support the regulator to come to robust, reliable and valid conclusions. The article reflects on how the OFS might revise its process of assessments to ensure 
that the judgments it delivers are indeed reliable and valid. Right, there's been a new report on access. Jess, walk us through the highlights, please. So let's move on from how much people should pay to who gets to go to university. Um, There's a new report out from NEON, which has looked at changes in higher education participation for students uh, who are eligible for free school meals between uh, 2011 and 2023. Um, So there is some good news. Uh, There has been a sort of increase in participation for this group of students um, who are, you know, some of some of the more disadvantaged to sort of go into our higher education system. Uh, But the report shows really that that progress has been quite slow and it's it's really regionally imbalanced. Uh, So if you are a young person on free school meals in some areas of the country, mostly in London, you are up to five times more likely to go to university uh, than those in other areas. Uh, And at the sort of most extreme, uh, you know, 66 percent of free school meal students in Westminster will go on to university and only uh, 13.8% of those in Swindon. So across the country, some some massive, massive differences in participation rates uh, for these students. Uh, And as Graham Peace points out, some of the political heat that we've seen before in the sort of widening participation agenda has sort of ebbed away over the years. Um, There's not a, a huge amount of sort of political emphasis on it at the minute. Um, Labour has no higher education widening participation target in its opportunity mission. We don't really know uh, where they will sort of point to and what they will ask of the sector when it comes to this. Uh, but I think uh, the NEON report is, is a good challenge that um, there's still lots to do and, and lots of good to be done. Um, Michael, I mean, yeah, as, as Jess said, the, there isn't an explicit target that Labour has about uh, about access, partly because of the back to the, the, the toxicity of this this uh, this this debate has been in, in politics. Um, but is there anything else that we can kind of read between the lines from what they've said about who and who should go to university and where and how you know how many people? Putting aside, of course, the fact that we're still you know not pledging to fund higher education fully. Well, quite. I think what's very, very unclear is the levers that a Labour government would use to to have any sort of movement or to have any policy influence in this space. I mean, looking looking back at their education mission or opportunity mission, as it's called, you know, there are some some big targets for for 2030, um, which already 2030, I think, for some of these targets already feels like a bit close compared to when they came out a year ago. I, I feel like they're going to need to get rowed back. It's seeing as you know. An election's not even happened yet. But, um, you know, they do have some targets around sort of widening access in very big headline terms um, in, uh, in across the sort of tertiary and post-compulsory space. I think it's 85% um, of, of school leavers going on to some kind of sustained educational destination, 70% having higher level opportunities. Certainly, they're not going to at any point, I think, put a number on university or, you know, degree level um, entrance rates because it just you know, provokes fury from, from, from so much of the commentariat. But, you know, they, there are some, there are some ambitious targets there, but there's no detail at all yet. You know, how, if, if, you know, they come to power and they can look at the trends that say Neon have identified that's going, you know, we're not, we're, we're not making fast enough progress or there's big regional disparities. How they're going to influence these things is completely unclear at the moment. And it would be, it would be really interesting to see if a little bit more detail comes out on that. Um, I note also today was the deadline for um, the shadow cabinet to submit their manifesto proposals. So it could be that, you know, things start leaking out in the next couple of months. But um, yeah, 
yeah, it, they, they, they do have some aspirations in, in the widening access space, I would say, but, but, you know, they're not front and center and there's, there's no meat on the bones of them yet. This report is very interesting about the regional disparities and the, the differences between London and the example that Jess gave London and Swindon and a 50 percentage point gap in, uh, entry rates. I mean, I think this, it's, you know, I think people need to look back historically and think about like, well, why is there a 50 point gap between London and Swindon? Okay. So if we go back to the, you know, 1997 and the, the last Labour government, I mean, the amount of money that was put in, the amount of resources put into schools in cities in particular, uh, was unparalleled. Um, so, you know, London schools used to be the worst in the country and now they're probably some of the best in the country. And, you know, that's for all kids in those schools. Um, so if you think about 10 years of sustained funding between 1997 and actually 2007 and all the way up to 2010, what we're actually seeing here and the fact that like there's such a high level of uh, participation amongst uh, kids on free school meals is, is probably in part as a result of historical funding and raising funding levels to such a high level. Now, those, those funding levels have eroded over the last you know, 10 years. Uh, but, you know, certainly something can be done to raise, you know, participation rates amongst uh, the least well-off kids. But it's, you know, Labour would have to be in power for three terms to essentially reverse some of these uh, issues and to address the, 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 the regional disparities again. I mean, it's, it's such a long-term issue. Um, and I, th- I think that this is like sort of quite upsetting, actually, that, you know, you see so many um, positive steps that were made over time that have basically been reversed or you know and these these the extent of regional disparities and postcode lotteries essentially is is uh you know really unacceptable to be honest and i'm going to do something that that's potentially quite unpopular on the wonky podcast and i'm going to give some rare praise to the ofs um because i think they they did start to get this um when they said you know part of the role of universities in access and widening participation is in the sort of school improvement attainment sort of what what you do with kids before they get to university on a, on a sort of skills and knowledge basis rather than a, a sort of aspiration basis. I think that a lot of that pointed to, you know, some of these big regional disparities that were never going to be sort of um, solved just by going into schools and encouraging kids nicely to go to university. You know, this, this was about, you know, giving them that, that leg up that they needed to sort of get them in the door and, and onwards to sort of actually, actually have the, the sort of skills and knowledge they need to succeed. Um, I think that is an area that could be really, really interesting. Like a lot of Labour's current education policy is in the sort of early years and then the school space, and then you get to higher education. So I, I think I think that's a, a sort of real pointer to you know what they are interested in. As Gavin said, is is you know London schools have improved massively. The outcomes for kids in London have improved massively. Uh, that is not the same in Sunderland if you're Bridget Phillipson and you're sort of acutely aware uh, that you know the participation rate in the northeast is about thirty percent compared to about sixty percent in London um and you know all of that i think points to what i think i what i would make labor's mission to be uh, would be something in that space um but you know i'm not writing their policy just yet yeah but i mean it is noticeable though that lots of these places with the worst free school meal um you know participation rates are in cold spots for higher education provision i mean it's certainly universities driving up school performance in in their local cities if we're talking about that you know can be very beneficial for those cities but you know swindon for example the the the, the worst performer in in this measure in the neon report you know famously there's been a lot of sort of local advocacy to have a university there which and it, you kind of get the feeling that if a future government was really serious about tackling this they, they need to be thinking about how do we get you know proper university provision 
into cold spots to you know obviously as gavin said there's many many other reasons all around schooling i mean around just sort of academic performance that need to be tackled first but you would think some sort of regional policy making about where universities are and you know i do mean sort of you know big sizable universities as opposed to sort of just the kind of you know articulation and 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 he and fe options that that tend to be used at the moment i think it's interesting though like i mean you know if the shadow cabinet have put in the final proposals for you know essentially uh, the manifesto i think the level of fiscal discipline that has been uh, illustrated by the shadow cabinet is unparalleled again i mean you know there's a lot of people lobbying the labor party for you know a little bit of extra money here there and everywhere and essentially <clears throat> there's a three-line whip in terms of the shadow cabinet saying no they're just basically not committing to anything that involves new money um, and that's pretty consistent across the entire sh- shadow cabinet. And I've never seen anything like that before. I mean, there's, it's, it's a blanket refusal to spend money. And I think, uh, I think the, when the manifesto do come out, there's going to be a lot of talk about supercharging the economy and supercharging research and commercialization activity in universities and et cetera, et cetera. But I think we're going to, despite what, you know, you'd imagine labor want to achieve in terms of providing opportunity for the least well off school level students. There's going to be very little detail indeed. And I think we'll, you know, hopefully we'll find out like, you know, after, I mean, I'm presuming they get elected, but I hopefully find out after they get in that they have a, a, a detailed plan. But, I, you know, at this stage, we just don't know what they're thinking. Yeah. And in fact, they're, they're unspending money, aren't they? As, as we speak, the <laughs> pr- pr- previously promised with the, for the, the green stuff. Go on, Jess, sorry. No, I was just going to say the, the other thing that, that is in the opportunity mission that I, I think gets missed sometime is, um, you know, quite a big commitment around sort of technical colleges, technical excellence, vocational skills. Um, there, there are some hints if you sort of, you know, maybe read a little bit too much between the lines that that, that is the area of focus. Um, that actually the the sort of successor to the 50% higher education participation target is something that is slightly more technical between FE and HE. Um, it doesn't look like the traditional sort of pathway into university. Uh, I think that's that's something to bear in bear in mind sort of as as the, the university sector is, is sort of discussing this. When you're not the priority, you sort of have to look at the, the wider world around it uh, and, and see what change is happening there because I, I think that could, that could have some of the answers in it. Yeah, I mean, and just turning away from labour for a minute, as well the, the the other thing that i think just really comes across reading this report and and thinking about these issues with access is you know for the the kind of lobby that's predominantly on the on the tory side of the question which is sort of saying you know too many people go to university a better target would be you know maybe 30 to 40 percent going to university you know would they then be okay with the free school meal entry rate dropping down to like you know 10 percent and and less in some areas and i don't think they would be and so what what's the what's the answer to that how do you square that circle if you're someone um uh, you know potentially in, in dfe now or in a future conservative opposition around you know what they think the size of the sector should be so much of students lives takes place under the radar yet it's students encounters around campus their confidence and independent learning and the pressures of juggling their work and personal commitments that shape how they engage with teaching and learning to really enable students to thrive requires knowing about the full extent of their lives not just the bits that universities can most readily see and touch but time and money are in short supply for universities and students and with no let up on funding in sight carefully choosing interventions that will help students to both survive and thrive has become more important and 
even tougher, deepening our collective understanding of what is in university's gift to influence and how to do the things that make a difference is vital. So at our Secret Life of Students event, we'll be interrogating the contemporary higher education policy questions through the student lens, bringing together sector leaders and managers, as well as student leaders and student union managers, to figure out how to respond in the student interest. What role should universities and SUs play in stoking or calming conflicts on campus? What are the expectations that we should place on students themselves to create a good learning experience? How are they learning and how can we both measure it and support it outside of the classroom? On the day, we'll round up key figures into the student experience from the past year and launch exciting new findings on the student experience beyond the classroom. That's The Secret Life of Students, London, 12th of March. Book online at wonky.com. See you there. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, all this week on Wonky, we've been taking a look at universities' role in fixing the public sector jobs pipeline and much more. Gavin, walk us through it. Brilliant. Thanks. So you're right, Mark. There's been a fair bit of coverage this week about public sector professions and the role of universities. There's been a few pieces of, of analysis from Plymouth Margins Vice-Chancellor, also from the University of Derby and University of Lyons. So what's the big issue? Well, there's about 28 million jobs in the economy and there's about 5 million sub public sector jobs. So that's about you know, 25%, 30%. About 30 to 40% of grads go into the public sector. So there's a, you know, uh, a big throughput of graduates into public sector professions. So going back to the Labour Party and the big challenges ahead of the next election is the public sector professions have been, um, you know, sort of eviscerated a bit. The, if you look at the NFAR's analysis of initial teacher training, for instance, the numbers are sort of like, you know, in the gutter. Um, and there's a, basically a real problem with recruiting teachers. There's also a real problem with uh, retaining teachers. Same with the NHS, which employs 1.7 million uh, people. There's an 11, 12% attrition rate. Uh, <clears throat> so we're losing, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of nurses every year. So we've got real problems. And if we don't have a healthy uh, workforce, we're not going to have a productive workforce. And that is going to sort of feed back into having really, really poor economic growth. So what to do? Times Commission, Health Commission came out this week uh, and they came out with their 10 key themes to, you know, recommendations for the NHS. One of these in the HE arena was about debt forgiveness. So public sector professions, in particular teachers and nurses, get uh, some degree of debt forgiveness, 30% after three years, 50% after five years, and 100% after 10 years or, you know, along those lines. So that's what they're proposing. Um, And the question is, 
Uh, is that a good idea? I don't know. Jess, I'll start with you. Would the smart money be on Labour looking at how universities could 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 help some of these problems, particularly around healthcare and in teaching, which we we talked about on the, in the previous item? Would the smart money then be on, you know, this could be this could be really the growth area for the sector after a general election? Yeah, so where Labour has put sort of firm numbers is on, uh, I think it's commitment for, I can't remember the, the exact, but it, it's it's X thousand more teachers and maybe 6,500 more doctors um, and, and more sort of allied health professionals to go with it. So so they, they clearly, you know, unsurprisingly, have a, a big push on, on public sector recruitment and will sort of work out the, the how and the where sort of once want, in power um the, the the other thing i guess is is that public sector workforce training is incredibly popular it's, it is one of the most popular things that universities do uh so we spend a lot of time looking not just at the national picture but at sort of the local picture for universities so what do people in a in a sort of three or four constituency radius think about your university and every single time top of the list is something like you know they train teachers and nurses and doctors and i really really like that and i'd like to do more of it and i know my cousin's mate went to that university and is now working in the local hospital uh, and there's a real sort of local pride in that you know all linked to the sort of civic agenda um which which you know is, is a real win for the for the university sector um I think, again, not to kind of make the conversation constantly about cost, uh, but often these courses are not cheap to teach, uh, particularly things like medicine, particularly some of the allied health professionals. Uh, they require you know, a huge amount of work with NHS trusts to provide placements. Uh, you can't overnight add a thousand more nursing students to a local area because the hospitals don't have capacity to to sort of give them the training and the placements that they need. Um, so, so a lot of this again comes down to sort of fairly chunky funding and logistical challenges. Um, but you're right that the, the smart money here is that this is this is both a popular thing and a political priority. Um, and I know there's lots of work. Gildet Cheese done a report. University Alliance has looked at this as well. Um, that that sort of points in that direction. Can I just come on? I mean, I know you want to put it away from cost, Jess, and I get the point. I mean, I'm going to bring it back to cost in a second, but this is like uh, on the other side of the equation. So <clears throat> the how and where is important. And one of the issues that um, we've had in the past is like when the NHS bursary, for instance, was removed back in 1617, um, part of the like, you know, sweeten the pill, what was what was actually said, it was the government at the time said, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to increase the number of places by 10,000. Okay. And I think universities sort of went along with that and thought like, okay, um, you know, we'll accept this. But the problem was that by removing the NHS bursary, this increased the cost to uh, prospective students by about 70% in real terms. So essentially what happened was demand went down. So And it went down by about 7%, which was exactly in line with what was uh, what was modelled. So the issue is that, you know, we can have, you know, Labour or any political party can talk about increasing the number of, you know, prospective nurses or teachers. But unless circumstances and... Um, you know, costs or or whatever it may be, unless circumstances and costs are adjusted so that uh, those places are, you know, availed of, it's a sort of meaningless policy. So I think what I'm basically saying is like some of these issues that have been talked in by the, the Times Health Commission about debt forgiveness. I mean, this seems to me to be like um, an, a really, really good idea, okay? Because it's, you know, a relatively cheap policy, okay? Because of the average level of earnings achieved by uh, teachers and nurses compared to... Uh, the median. 
but it means that it addresses uh, the issue of retention. So one of the problems, we can, re- we can recruit as many teachers and nurses as we want, but if we're losing them within five years of graduation, then it's all a pointless exercise. And we've incurred, as you rightly say, these massive costs associated with actually training these individuals. So, I mean, the analogy that's always sort of said to present to me is like uh, public sector workforce and teaching and nursing is like a leaky bucket. And there's no point in just filling it up repeatedly uh, if it's just leaking all the time. So I think these debt forgiveness, um, these debt forgiveness proposals, I mean, these were originally proposed by the Royal College of Nursing and we model them. Uh, but there's also other key players in the market that are looking at alternatives to debt forgiveness or, or variations in debt forgiveness. But from an economic perspective, if you want to address the where and the how, debt forgiveness is the way is one of the ways of addressing how, and it's a it's probably a really quite effective way of doing it. Yeah, I mean to to, to solve the sort of retention crisis you're seeing, particularly in teaching and in, and in nursing, you're going to have to do something on this scale, right? Like the the the, the size and scale of the problem is so big, you can't just keep sort of throwing token bursaries at things and, and hoping that they stick. My only question when it always comes to this is, is people use teaching and nursing as a shorthand and then they don't quite expand who would be included in a sort of debt and fiscal scheme and who wouldn't. So like, would you, for example, include doctors as well as nurses? So doctors tend to be, uh, they, they study for longer, they have higher loans, but they, on the whole, uh, tend to sort of have much higher earnings towards the end of their career. Um, you know, sort of six-figure consultants, uh, you know, they, they'll probably pay off all their student loan anyway. Your nurse is, is very different, you know, in a very different scenario to that. Uh, similarly, like you could do it for teachers. Would you do the same for social workers? Would you do the same for teaching assistants uh, who had degrees and things? You know, again, I'm, I'm sort of hy- getting into hypotheticals now. Um, but that's always the question for me is, is who do you pick to debt forgive and who do you don't is actually quite a, quite a big question. Well, Jess, you're absolutely right. And I'm, <clears throat> I mean, I'm, we're very happy to do the analysis. I mean, the thing is, it's not, I don't think it's a question about whether, okay, you tick a box and say, right, nurses tick, yeah, they're, that's worthy profession, teachers, same, social workers, yeah, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then the next doctors, no. I mean, the, the comparison is, you know, uh, you have to train a cohort of prospective nurses. And one option is you provide debt forgiveness. And you can apply this to any profession. One option is to provide, uh, provide debt forgiveness, and that costs. The alternative is you have to retrain or train a new cohort, which is 50% of the size, to plug the gaps of those people that have left. And the cost of recruitment and retention and training new a new cohort is will probably exceed any cost associated with debt forgiveness. So the point is, you know, it probably could be rolled out. And, it, you know, something like this, I mean, so, uh, like a policy with debt forgiveness, I mean, for particularly high earning graduates, like in, you know, uh, in medicine, for instance, um, you can adjust the rate of debt forgiveness. So, you know, instead of being what the Times Health Commission proposed 30, 70, 100% after three, seven, 10 years, it could be, you know, a slower rate of forgiveness, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, the same way that Migration Advisory Committee used to sort of say what shorter subjects were. You can apply debt forgiveness or more more generous debt forgiveness to those professions where there are the most acute issues in terms of uh, recruitment and retention. Sorry, Gavin. I I think this question about like doctors, high earners getting their loans forgiven, it it always whenever I see it, it always feels very symptomatic of the way as a wider sort of you know higher education policy making community we we've we've come to see tuition fees and the cost of going to university as a real private good. You know, it's been like well, how you know. Why should these high-earning doctors have their loans paid off? Um, you know, but really, it's sh- surely we should be thinking strategically about, you know, what what work what workers do we need? 
um, what areas do we not want to lose people? You know, if if the if it's a sort of golden handcuffs thing for doctors to stop them going and working in the private sector or to stop them moving to another country, you know, surely the economic and social benefits for the country are the thing we should be thinking about in policy making, not about who are the winners or losers in the sort of private benefits of higher education. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on walkie.com. Don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Walkie Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out about how we can keep you and where you work ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the site and click subscriptions. So thanks very much to Michael, Jess and Gavin. We'll be back next week. Jim will be here. Until then, stay wonky. Stay wonky.